This is Chapter 8, Book 2 of A Journey in Other Worlds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. A Journey in Other Worlds, Book 2, Chapter 8, Sportsman's Reveries. Feeling grateful to the huge tortoise for the good service he had rendered, they shot a number of the great snakes that were gliding on the ground and placed them where he would find them on awakening. Then they picked their way carefully towards stretches on which the grass was shortest. When they had gone about two miles and had already reached higher ground, they came to a ridge of rock running at right angles to their course. This they climbed, and on looking over the edge of the crest beheld a sight that made their hearts stand still. A monster somewhat resembling an alligator, except that the back was arched, was waddling about perhaps seventy-five yards from them. It was sixty feet long, and to the top of its scales was at least twenty-five feet high. It was constantly moving, and the travelers noticed with some dismay that its motion was far more rapid than they would have supposed it could be. "'It is also a dinosaur,' said the professor, watching it sharply, and very closely resembles the Stegosaurus ungulatus, restored in the museums. The question is, what shall we do with the living specimen now that we have it? "'Our chairman,' said Ayrault, "'must find a way to kill it, so that we may examine it closely.' "'The trouble is,' said Bearwarden, "'our bullets will explode before they penetrate the scales. "'In the absence of any way of making a passage for an explosive ball by means of a solid one, "'we must strike a vital spot. "'His scales being no harder than the trunk of a tree, "'we can wound him terribly by touching him anywhere.' but there is no object in doing this unless we can kill him, especially as there is no deep stream such as would have delayed the mastodon in reaching us to protect us here. We must spread out so as to divert his attention from one to another. After some consultation it was decided that Cortland, who had only a shotgun, should remain where they were, while Bearwarden and Errolt moved some distance to the right and left. At a signal from Cortland, who was to attract the monster's attention, the wings were to advance simultaneously. These arrangements they carried out to the letter. When Bearwarden and Errolt had gone about twenty-five yards on either side, the doctor imitated the peculiar grunting sound of an alligator, at which the colossal monster turned and faced him while Bearwarden and Errolt moved to the attack. The plan of this was good, for with his attention fixed on three objects, the dinosaur seemed confused, and though Bearwarden and Errolt had good angles from which to shoot, there was no possibility of their hitting each other. They therefore advanced steadily, with their rifles half up. Though their own danger increased with each step, in the event of their missing, the chance of their shooting wild decreased, the idea being to reach the brain through the eye. 
Cortland's part had also its risks, for, being entirely defenseless with his shotgun against the large creature whose attention it was his duty to attract, he staked all on the marksmanship of his friends. Not considering this, however, he stood his ground, having the thumbpiece of his Winchester magazine shoved up and ready to make a noisy diversion, if necessary, in behalf of either wing. Having aroused the monster's curiosity, Cortland sprang up, waving his arms and his gun. The dinosaur lowered his head, as if to charge, thereby bringing it to a level with the rifles, either of which could have given it the fatal shot. But as their fingers pressed the triggers, the reptile soared up thirty feet in the air. Errol pulled for his first sight, shooting through the lower jaw and shivering that member, while Bearwarden changed his aim and sighted straight for the heart. In an instant the monster was down again, just missing Errol's head as he stepped back, and Bearwarden's rifle poured a stream of explosive bullets against its side, rending and blowing away the heavy scales. Having drawn the dinosaur's attention to himself, he retreated, while Errol renewed the attack. Cortland, seeing that the original plan had miscarried, poured showers of small shot against the huge beast's face. Finally one of Erolt's balls exploded in the brain, and all was over. "'We have killed it at last,' said Bearwarden, "'but the first attack, though artistic, had not the brilliant results we expected. These creatures' mode of fighting is doubtless somewhat similar to that of the kangaroo, which it is said puts its forepaws gently, almost lovingly, on a man's shoulders, and then disembowels him by the rapid movement of a hind leg. But we shall get used to their method, and can do better next time. Then they reloaded their weapons, and, while Cortland examined their victim from a naturalist's point of view, Bearwarden and Errol secured the heart which they thought would be the most edible part, the operation being rendered possible by the amount of armor the explosive balls had stripped off. "'Tomorrow,' said Bearwarden, "'we must make it a point to get some well-fed birds, for I can roast, broil, or fricassee them to a turn. Life is too short to live on this meat in such a sportsman's paradise. In any case, there can be no end of mastodons, mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, moa birds, and all such shooting. As the sun was already near the horizon, they chose a dry, sandy place to secure as much immunity as possible from nocturnal visits, and after procuring a supply of water from a pool, proceeded to arrange their camp for the night. They first laid out the protection wires, setting them while the sun still shone. Next they built a fire, and prepared their evening meal. While they ate it, twilight became night, and the fireflies, twinkling in legions in the neighboring valley, seemed like the lamps of a great city. "'Their lights,' said Bearwarden, pointing to them, are not as fine as the jellyfish will-of-the-wisps were last night, but they are not so dangerous. No Genoptis 
or electric eel that I have ever seen compared with them, and I am convinced that any one of us they might have touched would have been in kingdom calm. The balmy air soothed the travelers' brows as they reclined against mounds of sand, while the flowers in the valley sent up their dying notes. One by one the moons arose, till four, among them the Lilliputian, discovered by Professor Barnard in 1893, were in the sky, flooding the landscape with their silvery light, and something in the surroundings touched a sympathetic chord in the men. "'Oh, that I were young again,' said Cortland, "'and had life before me. I should like to remain here, and grow up with this planet, in which we already perceive the next new world. The beauties of earth are barren compared with the scenes we have here.' "'You remember,' replied Bearwarden, "'how Cicero defends old age.' in his De Senatu, and shows that while it has almost everything that youth has, it has also a sense of calm and many things besides. Yes, answered Cortland, but while plausible it does not convince. The pleasures of age are largely negative, the old being happy when free from pain. Since the highest joy of life, said Errolt, is coming to know our Creator, I should say the old, being further advanced, would be the happier of the two. I should never regard this material life as greatly to be prized for itself. You remember the old song? O youth, when we come to consider the pain, the toil, and the strife, the happiest man of all is the one who has finished his life. I suspect, continued Harold, that the man who reaches even the lowest plane in paradise will find far more beautiful visions than any we have here. As they had but little rest the night before, they were all tired. The warm breeze swayed the long dry grass, causing it to give out a soft rustle. All birds except the flitting bats were asleep among the tall ferns or on the great trees that spread their branches towards heaven. There was nothing to recall a picture of the huge monsters they had seen that day, or of the still more to be dreaded terror these had borne witness to. Thus night closes the activities of the day, and in its serene grandeur the soul has time to think. While they thought, however, drowsiness overcame them, and in a little while all were asleep. The double line of protection wires encircled them like a silent guard, while the methodical ticking of the alarm clock that was to wake them at the approach of danger and register the hour of interruption formed a curious contrast to the irregular cries of the nighthawks in the distance. Time and again some huge iguanodon or a hypsoapus would pass, shaking the ground with its tread. But so implicit was the traveler's trust in the vigilance of their mechanical and tireless watch, that they slept on as calmly and unconcernedly as though they had been in their beds at home, while the tick was as constant and regular as a sentry's march. 
The wires, of course, did not protect them from creatures having wings, and they ran some risk of a visitation from the blood-sucking bats. The far-away volcanoes occasionally sent up sheets of flame, which in the distance were like summer lightning, the torrents of lava and crashes that had sounded so thunderous when near, were now like the murmur of the ocean's ebb tide, lulling the terrestrials to deeper sleep. The pale moons were at intervals momentarily obscured by the rushing clouds in the upper air, only to reappear soon afterwards as serene as before. All nature seemed at rest. Shortly before dawn there was an unusually heavy step. A moment later the ever-vigilant batteries poured forth their current, and the clang of the alarm bell made the still night ring. In an instant the three men were awake, each resting on one knee, with their backs towards the center, and their polished barrels raised. It was not long before they perceived the intruder by moonlight. A huge monster of the Triceratops prorsus species had entered the camp. It was shaped something like an elephant, but it had ten or twelve times the bulk, being over forty feet in length, not including the long thick tail. The head carried two huge horns on the forehead, and one on the nose. A plague on my shotgun, said Cortland. Had I known how much of this kind of game we should see, I too should have brought a rifle. The monster was entangled in the wires, and in another second would have stepped on the batteries that were still causing the bell to ring. "'Aim for the heart,' said Bearwarden to Ayrault. "'When you show me his ribs, I will follow you in the hole.' Ayrault instantly fired for a point just back of the left foreleg. The explosion had the same effect as on the mastodon, removing a half-barrel of hide, etc., and the next second Bearwarden sent a bullet less than an inch from where Ayrault's had stopped. Before the Colossus could turn, each had caused several explosions in close proximity to the first. The creature was, of course, terribly wounded, and several ribs were cracked, but no ball had gone through. With a roar it made straight for the woods, and with surprising agility running fully as fast as an elephant. Bearwarden and Arolt kept up a rapid fire at the left hind leg, and soon completely disabled it. The dinosaur, however, supported itself with its huge tail, and continued to make good time. Knowing they could not give it a fatal wound at the intervening distance, in the uncertain light they stopped firing, and set out in pursuit. Cortland paused to stop the bell that still rang, and then put his best foot foremost in regaining his friends. For half a mile they hurried along, until seeing, by the quantity of blood on the ground, that they were in no danger of losing the game, they determined to save their strength. The trail entered the woods by a narrow ravine, passed through what proved to be but a belt of timber, and then turned north to the right. Presently, in the semi-darkness, they saw the monster's head against the sky. He was browsing among the trees, tearing off the young branches, and the hunters succeeded in getting within seventy-five yards before being discovered. 
just as he began to run, the two rifles again fired, this time at the right hind leg, which they succeeded in hamstringing. After that, the Triceratops prorsus was at their mercy, and they quickly put an end to its suffering. "'The sun is about to rise,' said Bearwarden. "'In a few minutes we shall have enough light.' They cut out a dozen thick slices of tenderloin steak, and soon were broiling and eating a substantial breakfast. "'There are not as many spectators to watch us eat here,' said Cortland, as in the woods. "'I suggest that, after returning to camp for our blankets and things, we steer for the Callisto, via this Triceratops, to see what creatures have been attracted by the body. On finishing their meal they returned to the place at which they had passed the night. Having straightened the protection wires, which had become twisted, and arranged their impedimenta, they set out, and were soon once more beside their latest victim. This is the end of Chapter 8 in Book 2 of A Journey in Other Worlds. Recording by Tom Weiss